Shalom, Mishpacha. Shalom, family. Mishpacha is a Hebrew word. That's what it means, family. And we're the Mishpacha, the family with a Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people where the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, it's finally come down to form one new man. Getting ready, Mishpacha, to blow the grandest shofar. Oh, the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone everywhere to hear the good news. We want everyone everywhere to be red hot for the Messiah. Well, my guest can't help but be red hot for the Messiah. He's L.A. Marzulli, and we have his brand new book. It's just come out, just literally right off the printing press. It's called On the Trail of the Nephilim. And I have never seen such amazing research. You see, the Nephilim were the giants that the Bible talks about and uh, kind of mysterious. And uh, there's talk about the uh, angels uh, having sex with uh, earth beings, uh, women, and then having uh, giants uh, as their children that that did these great events that uh, mythology talks about. And it's been kind of fuzzy because there isn't a lot of that in the Bible. But L.A., tell me why you wrote your book on the trail of the Nephilim. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, basically, the, the, the impetus for writing the book Jesus tells us very, very distinctly in Matthew 24, it would be like the days of Noah when the Son of Man returned. Be like the days of Noah when the Son of Man returned, which immediately begs the question, what differentiates the days of Noah? And remember, when he's saying this, there is no New Testament. All he has to draw on is the Tanakh, the Old Testament. So he's pointing back to something. It's like a flare, a spiritual flare that goes off. Look back at Genesis 6 because that's the days of Noah. And what we see here is the presence of the B'nai Ha Elohim, the fallen angels, doing the unthinkable, having sex with human women, creating a hybrid known as the Nephilim. This is the reason for the flood of Noah. And I believe it carries over uh, throughout the biblical... Oh, okay. Well, what, what is the Nephilim, what you say, is the reason for the flood of Noah? Why do you say that? Well, the Nephilim were demonic hybrids, essentially. Again, there's a huh. progeny, the progeny between women of earth and fallen angels. This is an absolute abomination in God's sight. And when we go down to Noah, we see that only Noah's genealogy is, is clear, is without contamination. Apparently, and not only with the, with the human kingdom, but the animal kingdom as well. We know this, again, from the Book of Enoch. Which, which is uh, quoted, by the way, 70 times in the, in the Tanakh and alluded to in the book of Jude, Peter, and 1 Corinthians. So you've got a good biblical overview that the book of Enoch was at least used and read. It's also found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it sort of amplifies the Genesis 6 account and points specifically to this genetic manipulation. And here's a really key, key point for us, Sid. Genetic manipulation happening in the days of Noah and also afterward. The text says the Nephilim were on the earth then, colon, and also afterward. And we're going to talk about that, of course, when Joshua and Caleb go into the promised land. Who is there? The Nephilim. Now, of course, why didn't the flood destroy them all? Well, this is uh, the conundrum. I believe that there was a second, third, fourth, and fifth incursion. Um, I believe that the fallen ones, specifically Satan, 
have been doing this over and over and over again. Written about this extensively. When we the judgment, anytime a Nephilim are present, we see the judgment. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's just judgment. They get wiped out. When we go to Sodom and Gomorrah, we see that same type of judgment from a loving, holy God who is the same in the Old Testament as He is in the New. And this has tripped up biblical scholars because without the Nephilim being plugged in, the progeny of fallen angels and the women on earth, Sodom and Gomorrah seems like genocide. Then, of course, later on, when we go to the conquest of the Promised Land by Joshua and Caleb, we get that same mandate from a loving, holy God telling Joshua and Caleb, wipe everything out. You know, a lot of believers read this in the Bible and they say, what kind of God is this that wipes an entire civilization out? Well, it makes no sense until we plug in the Nephilim, and then we realize that what is dwelling in these places are fallen angel and human hybrid creatures, which are an abomination. And in the book, I make a point that that God sends Jonah to Nineveh, and these people in Nineveh literally invented the word barbarian. They would have the heads of their enemies on stakes all around the walls of their city. They were some of the most despicable human beings ever to walk the face of the earth. And yet, God sends Jonah because there's grace and mercy. We don't see grace and mercy with the Nephilim in the flood, nor do we see it um, with Sodom and Gomorrah. Do we see it with the conquest of Canaan? The judgment is always final. Now, if there are Nephilim today, why don't we see 10 feet people walking around. Well, our DNA was changed, and we know this for a fact because Scripture tells us this. In the days of Nimrod at the Tower of Babel, our DNA has changed, and we know that our lifespan decreases from between five and 900 years back down to 120 years or less, which is where we are. So the fallen ones are no longer getting what they got pre-flood. I see. So now, of course, I've, I've examined your research, but uh, what would you say is the first thing, as you were on the trail of the Nephilim, to push you over the edge to say, I have proof, I have documentation? Well, there's actually two. The first, the first um, sort of red flag for me was the uh, plethora of accounts that came from the latter part of the 19th century into the 20th century. Uh, and these are found... Um, you have to go to antiquarian libraries and, and look them up, microfish, but they're there. And there are articles all over the, uh, the, the Americas specifically, from Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Indiana, clear all the way down to St. Louis, um, down in Alabama, and of course even out here in Catalina. We hear over, in, which is in California, we hear over and over again a race of giants which seemingly predated Native Americans, uh, some of these giants were between 9 and 12 feet. And then what's interesting here, so as we get primitive archaeological digs being done, where men of letters, let's say 100, 125 years ago, will begin to dig into these mounds, and there they find nine and 12, between 9 and 12 footers, double rows of teeth, six fingers, red hair. And, of course, this is anomalous. And um, the weaponry that they have, uh, the spearheads, the axe heads, we have one picture of a 26-pound axe head, uh, in, in, in on the trail with the Nephilim. And we have a whole list. We picked the 25. We, we had hundreds of them to choose from, these, these old uh, newspaper articles. We picked the 25 uh, ones which we thought would really sort of make the case that this was widespread. And then, of course, what ha and people ask, well, where are the bones? 
and that, of course, begins the cover-up. So that was the first. That was sort of the first part of the trail, and then later on we discovered something, and that's where we led the expedition down to Peru. Uh, tell me what you're finding in museums. I mean, these pictures of skulls uh, and of bones are amazing. Uh, well, better than that. Uh, why do you say our U.S. government, foreign governments, the Smithsonian? is involved in a cover-up of these Nephilim. Well, the Smithsonian, there's a, there, again, there's a paper trail that goes back well over 135, 150 years ago now, uh, which show that, that, that these bones are, when they're discovered, there's, people have little museums and, and, they, and they write about these things. But as, as, as time begins in sort of a latter part of the 19th century into the 20th, we know this from the historical record that the Smithsonian sent out teams, and not just two or three teams, many teams. And they went to these places and they gathered up the bones, and we've never seen them again. And conveniently, uh, the Smithsonian, uh, in, the United States government actually, instituted what is called as NAGPRA, which means Native American Grave Protection Repatriation Act, which means that as, a, as a, a white man here, I am not allowed to look at any of these remains without the presence of a tribal member, which I was down at UCLA yesterday, and uh, there was a tribal member there as I was examining the skeletals, skeletal remains from Catalina. These were all Native Americans. There was nothing um, anomalous in any of the, the skulls that I saw. But we know from the, just from the historical record that these people would find the bones. They would call the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian would come in, they would crate up the, the artifacts and the bones, and they were never seen again. They were never displayed. And, of course, I've been trying to get in the Smithsonian now for well over a year where we have a contact apparently on the inside that might be able to get me in. We'll see. But realizing that between NAGPRA and the Smithsonian and, and the fact that there seems to be a deliberate cover-up of these artifacts, and the reason for this is it goes against the Darwinian paradigm and what is known as the Beringian uh, theory, which is at the end of the last ice age, at the Bering Strait, that's where we get Beringian from, at the Bering Strait, the ice, the, the, it created a landmass, and all these people from Asia walked across into the Americas following megafauna, in other words, large animals like mastodons and bisons and saber-toothed tigers, and so there was this big hunt here. Well, that's been the paradigm which evolutionists and Darwinists have embraced ever since Darwin and, and, and later on. It's been so, so are you telling me this totally puts, uh, throws a monkey wrench in Darwinism, in evolution, uh, and that is the reason for the cover-up? Is that what you're saying? Well, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm laying my chips down, because I believe that, yes, this is a deliberate cover-up because Darwinism is sacrosanct. It is the paradigm in which both academia and the scientific community work in. And anything that would support a biblical worldview or a biblical model seems to be deliberately obfuscated, deliberately covered up. Uh, and you know what I find fascinating is everyone thinks the first uh, inhabitants of North America were Native Americans. But you have found evidence that there were giants way before the Native Americans, right in the United States. Uh, you, you've assembled your best 120 pictures, totally unaltered. Uh, it, the, your research is like almost, as if I can say, a missing link in understanding end times. Well, I, I, I agree. And again, we go back to Jesus 
saying it'll be like the days of Noah. Whoops. Oh, we're, we're out of time, but I want to get his brand new book called On the Trail of the Nephilim and two DVDs on the same subject available for a gift of $50. You will find out things you've never been told in school before that make the Bible become so alive. Available for a gift of $50 on the Trail of the Nephilim. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697, 1-800-447-2697. When Jesus said before his second coming, it will be like the days of Noah, it talks about the Nephilim. These were the giants, according to the Bible. Now, why do you say, L.A. Marzulli, that that's what Jesus was referring to, as opposed when I hear about the days of Noah, the first thing that comes into my mind is uh, uh, sexual sin and depravity of mankind. Well, the sexual sin, and interesting, he says, to, to further elaborate on that passage where Jesus is talking, it says, they were eating and drinking and giving in marriage. And we, in order to really understand what that passage means, again, let me go back to Genesis 6. The only people who are giving in marriage in Genesis 6, and who are eating and drinking, are the Nephilim, or are the fallen angels. It says very, specific, very specifically that these, the sons of God, which is B'nai Ha Elohim, the Hebrew term which means angelic beings. We know that because we can go to Job and see exactly that same phrase being used. So there are angelic beings, and in this case, are the bad guys. And we know that the sons of God, the fallen angels, come down and they take for whoever they want, they choose wives, and they marry them. That is the they that Jesus is referring to. And this is why it's not sexual depravity of man. It's fallen angels cohabiting, having sex with the women of earth, creating a hybrid creature then known as the Nephilim. And what he's trying to do, the bottom line here is said, Satan is attempting to make man in his own image. He's a counterfeiter. We are made in the image and likeness of God. Satan's mission, and this, by the way, ties into the mark of the beast, Satan's, Satan's mission is to create man in his own image, and that's what he's been trying to do since Genesis 6. Hmm. And, of course, Jesus is creating man in his image. So yeah, you have the, the mirror counterfeit of it. Um, now, uh, I am fascinated by the fact that you have evidence in your brand new book on the trail of the Nephilim uh, that the first inhabitants uh, in the United States were not Native American, uh, but were the descendants of the Nephilim, these giants. Uh, tell me your evidence. Well, the evidence is, is very interesting. We believe that uh, part of the Amorites, who we know were a Nephilim tribe, when Joshua and Caleb began to press in and conquer Israel, uh, the, the Promised Land, some of these giant tribes saw what was going on and left. We... Now, now, how do we know that they're a giant tribe? Well, because these are actually listed in Scripture, the, Zan, the Zanzumins, the Nephilim, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Hittites, ah, okay. the Canaanites, the Pezrazites, all these, all these tribes are listed in, in the Bible, so we know so, they were there. We also have a map, basically, like Og of Bashan, one of the largest giants, the last of the, of the Rephaim. This guy was approximately between 13 and 15 feet. But we believe that the Amorite tribes in particular went through northern Europe and settled back down in the Ohio Valley. And they're, they're, uh, of the United States, you're saying? 
Yes. Okay. And it, it took them a while to do this. It's all a land journey. But we have some other evidence, which, again, links the Nephilim back into um, the, the, the promised land. We think and we believe, and I'm not the only person who holds this theory. My colleague, Judd Burton, who's an archaeologist and anthropologist, also believes that there was a diaspora, a, a immigration, if you will, an exodus from the promised land as Joshua and Caleb began to conquer those tribes. Some went north, some went across the Atlantic Ocean. And we believe that there is strong, very strong evidence of this because, for instance, in Ohio, we see these earthen works. We see this mound complex known as the Great Circle Mound. Now, when you say the word mound complex, what does that mean? Thank you. These, these mounds, first of all, are enormous, 1,250 feet in diameter. They are, and the earth, they're earthworks. Some of the earth has been taken literally from miles away. It's constructed with incredible symmetry. And the, the Great Circle Mound in Ohio is a henge. And a henge means that there's a circular work. It can be of stone. In this particular instance, it's of dirt. But in the inside of the henge, there's a waterway. So when the henge, when, when the henge was in operation, literally over 3,000 years ago, there's, that, it's estimated between three and 4,000 years and this begs the question, how does a primitive culture, without the use of the wheel, without the use of the wheel, create this type of mathematical, perfectly symmetrical um, edifice on the face of the earth? And what's even more interesting, the complex from the Circle Mound used to extend to, a, to an area known as the Octagon Mound. And you could fit the Great Pyramid inside of the octagon mound. That's how enormous this thing is. I have walked through it. And what's really interesting, Sid, from the ground... What is the purpose of these mounds, by the well, way? Well, they are all ceremonial and ritualistic. Our, what I believe this is... So it's always more, more like a worship-type thing? Well, they are, but there's, also, there's evidence of human sacrifice at all these places. Hmm. These, in my opinion, are, are, are... It's Nephilim architecture. It's fallen angel architecture. Uh, I don't think it has anything to do with it, Native Americans, with all due respect. For instance, in the Octagon Mount, every 18.6 years, the full, the full moon comes up uh, in, in, the, in the longest month of the year, in June, right over one particular part of the Octagon Mount. It's extremely ceremonial. But here's the rub, Sid. You can only appreciate it from the air. When you're down on the ground walking through the Circle Mount or into the Octagon Mount, one has no idea really what they're looking at. The circular mound's easier because there's this huge, gigantic circle. And standing in the middle of it, okay, I'm in a circle, I can see that. But when you're in the octagon mound, it is so enormous. And you remember, these sites were linked at one point in time. There's a housing development that separates them now. But in antiquity, they were linked together. And the only way you can really view these are from the air. And they are mathematically, the, the way these things were, were created and done, in my opinion, this is not the work of Native Americans. This is the work of something far older. So, so it's like that mystery of uh, we, we hear the Stonehenge, and everyone says, how was that built? Mm -hmm. Is that the same type of thing? Well, this, we'll talk about this a little later, perhaps, but the short answer to that is yes. We believe that these megalithic structures that were on the earth, and you're talking Stonehenge, and we can even talk about um, some of the henges found in the Americas, this is, this is the, same, the same group of people, dare I say people, but the same, the same entities. I believe this is fallen angel technology. I believe that the prince of the power of the air, who we know is Satan, 
is responsible, and he was setting up a— uh, uh, why, why do you feel that the, uh, Satan or the prince of the power of the air is responsible for these mounds? Because there is—first of all, there is, there is evidence, uh, good evidence, of human sacrifice at all these sites. And this goes back right back to the days of Nimrod, where the whole idea of human sacrifice was originated. And this is the essence of the, the fallen one's religious system. But, but the science that these things, I've looked at your documentation, uh, the science that was available, geometry they had to have, they have, had to have all the, all the type of technology we have today. How, how old is this? Well, the site, um, the Circle Mound, and I'm, I'm being conservative, here, is about 3,500 years ago. So how could they have had all this elaborate science 3,500 years ago? That's the point. It has, the technology springs into existence and then vanishes. Now, And some of these stones are 120 tons, uh, and they had to move them like building blocks, like marshmallows, uh, to build with them. How in the world did they move these uh, stones weighing up to 120 tons. Yeah, you're you're speaking of what we what we discovered in South America. Um, the stone the stonework in South America, and specifically in Sacsayhuaman, uh, defies modern engineering tech, techniques today. Um, the material is known. For, the stone is called andesite. It's extremely hard, and yet we see these polygonal shapes in the stones. Um, the quarry is 40 to 60 miles away. You're working at an elevation of 12,000 feet. Uh, the, the stones are polygonal shape, and it's not just the front. These cuts go all the way back through the stone. But what, what do you feel these um, fallen angels uh, that cohabited with the uh, daughters of men uh, that the Bible tells us about, what, what was their goal besides creating a, a race, if you will, a hybrid race that's evil, uh, what was their goal? Well, the goal is to, the the end goal is to make man in the fallen one's image, and also to set up this this control mechanism, which we believe existed before the flood. And we see the fallen one uh, after the flood attempting once again to create a grid system, which empowers uh, and use is used to empower his plan, basically. And this is why these. Do you think that this is perhaps uh, uh, the, the 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 wheat and the tares and and, and the tares are, are the sons of the evil one that are going to be the whole antichrist system? Well, it, eventually, you know, we're kind of skipping around here, but yeah, eventually, I believe it ties into the mark of the beast and the antichrist system. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a there's a link between antiquity and modernity between what happened thousands of years ago and what is happening right now. And it ties in eventually into the mark of the beast. You have to tell uh, my audience right now about all of those thousands of years ago, they actually had electricity? Yeah, the the stones that are created or used, let's say, in some of these monuments, all have piezoelectric power or properties to them. They can conduct electrical current. Uh, again, these stones are shaped with such precision that a human hair cannot go through them. And the size in which the stones are, lay on top of each other are polished to a high, high degree of, of, um, of luminosity. It's, it's just amazing to see the architecture. And this, this architecture springs up out of nowhere and then vanishes. Tell me uh, some of the... Uh skeletons and the skulls you've found in North America that prove that, that these uh, children of the, of the Nephilim uh, 
were really in North America before the Native Americans. Well, we hear over and over again from these these reports, um, which are in uh, the ancient you know newspaper articles from let's say the latter part of the 19th century to the 20th, of nine, ten, eleven, and twelve footers being taken out of the mountains in Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, all through the Midwest, and then, of course, it comes down into the Southwest and over to California. We hear that there's a giant race. What's really interesting, and, and, we, and I interviewed a man by the name of Robert Mirabal, who's a uh, full-blooded American past Pueblo, who created, also a Grammy Award-winning uh, composer. So he created this, this um, sort of a tableau, sort of a scene called Stiltwalker, and I, when I saw this thing, I was blown away from it. And, and in, in the opening phrases of this, this presentation that he does, and it's dramatic lighting and everyone in full native regalia and costumes, he's narrating off camera, and, he, and he's talking about when the, when the sky gods saw the daughters of men and, and that they were, and, he, and, it, and it mirrors Genesis 6. I mean, almost exactly. Of course, I fell out my chair. And, and they called them the sky gods. That's almost interesting. The sky gods. Okay, go ahead. Came down, had sex with the, with the men and women and created these giants. And these giants would live in the mountains, and so the braves would go out and hunt. And they show all this, and he's narrating this thing. Well, out of the wings on the stage come, comes this, this man on stilts, and he's well over you know, 10, 12 feet tall. He's absolutely huge. And it's very, very deliberate. And so, okay, I looked at the thing and watched what he said, watched the whole thing, and I contacted Mirabal, and my first question to him, Robert, where did you get this from? And he told me it was an oral tradition passed down from his grandfather to himself, and his, his grandfather got it from his grandfather, and back and back and back it goes. And, and I asked him point blank, so you believe that there were giants on the earth? He says, absolutely. They, could, they, they were telepathic, they could read your mind, and they were from the sky gods. And then I asked him, well, Robert, let me ask you something. Um, we believe that the sky gods could be fallen angels. And he immediately said, yes, you can go that way too. Now, I'm not saying he believes that, but he showed recognition, at least recognized that part of this could be what we believe, of course, is fallen angels, because it mirrors, it totally dovetails with Genesis 6. Now, in, in your book, you talk about the early settlers uh, started digging into these mounds that were used for religious purposes, uh, sacrificing children, demonic religious purposes, uh, and they actually found skeletons of giant men. And uh, uh, how, how tall were, were they from the skeletons? Well, there's a lot of eight-footers, very common. But you get some real big guys in there between 9 and 12 feet tall. And, and some of them, uh, in fact, I'm reminded in the Bible, it talks about uh, someone that had six fingers and six toes. Correct. Uh, they found that also in the skeletal remains? Yes, we know from the Bible that Goliath's brothers specifically had six fingers and six toes. We know that. The Bible tells us very specifically, it's written in the text, that this is what a sort of a genetic anomaly that these brothers of Goliath, who was a giant, as were her brothers, his brothers had. And so we come over here to the Americas, and what do we see? It seems like many of these giants that are exhumed have six fingers, six toes, double rows of teeth. So, again, we're looking, in my opinion, Sid, at genetic manipulation from an outside agency which is trying to create something, genetically mess with the human genome. Uh, okay, and we know these aren't Native Americans because, among other things, tell me this latest research you found out about the red hair. Well, the red hair is certainly anomalous among Native Americans. In fact, No, I haven't seen too many red-headed Native Americans. That's the point. They're not. Uh, and this goes back into the whole 
Darwinian theory that at the end of the Ice Age they came over the Bering Strait and settled North America, South America, and you know Central America, all that. Well, all of a sudden you get this race of red-haired giants also found in the Ohio Valley, but also found down in Paracas, Peru, where we were. And we took a hair sample from um, this, this mummy, which was at least 2,000 years old, and we had the hair sample analyzed with a machine, a very sophisticated uh, scientific machine, which is called Raman spectroscopy. And what this does is it measures the, measures the molecular structure of, of the particular hair that you're putting into this machine. And it will show you what it looks like and prints it out on a graph. And we had four samples. We had, and this, by the way, links in this whole mark of the beast thing that we talked about a little earlier, in my opinion, but I'll get there. The, the, the human hair, which is our control sample. Then we had another human hair, which was dyed. Then the third one was the red hair, which we brought back from Paracas, Peru. The fourth hair was a blonde hair that was supposedly found on a man who had been abducted by, and I'll use the word aliens. Of course, we don't believe these are aliens. We believe these are demonic hybrids from, once again, modern Nephilim, fallen angel stuff, not aliens. But he had the presence of mind when he awakened to, to hold on to this very blonde-looking hair. So we analyzed all four hairs under the Raymond spectroscopy. This is what we found on the graph. The first, the human hair, sort of has a, a, a very nice little arch and goes from one end to the other. The dyed hair goes right up the top of the graph. It just shoots right off the top of the graph. So we see that there's a huge difference between the human hair and a dyed hair. Then we took the red hair and, and, and the so-called alien hybrid blonde hair. And now, by the way, when was this uh, alleged abduction? Um, less than 10 years ago. Okay, go ahead. And what we found, to our absolute amazement, and I'll show you the graph when I see you in, in, in a little bit, that the, the red hair from Paracas, which is at least 2,000 years old, and the blonde hair from present day track with one another all the way up from the bottom of the uh, graph to the middle of the graph to the top of the graph and then back down. They mirrored each other. And we, we just went, oh, my gosh, is, this, is there a connection? And, again, it, it's inconclusive, but it lends credibility to the paradigm in which I'm working under, that the fallen ones, the fallen angels, were genetically tampering with the human genome thousands of years ago and are back doing the same thing today. And here's the rub. We talked about the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast has four characteristics or four criteria to it. You take it, you, you can't buy, sell, or trade without taking the mark. The second one, anyone who takes this mark, winds up in the lake of fire. So we see, once again, the finality of God's judgment over anyone who takes the mark, which then begs the question, why the severity of the judgment? The third one is, anyone who takes the mark will seek death in those days and not die. Is it because this mark somehow genetically changes us, so our life hmm. increases, let's say, between 509 years? In other words... 900 years. The body would repair itself. So if you got cancer, you wouldn't die. Your body would just repair itself. So all of a sudden, longevity would happen. And, and it talks about men and women seeking death in those days and not being able to find it. And of course, the fourth criteria is anyone who takes this mark, grievous sores appear in the body. So looking at all that, I believe 
because the judgment is exactly the same judgment, no grace or mercy, that we see any time in Scripture that the Nephilim are present, from Genesis to Sodom and Gomorrah to the conquest of Canaan, the mandate is always the same, and it's the same exact mandate in the book of Revelation. You take the mark, you wind up in the lake of fire, and there's a reason for it, Sid, and it, and it links back into what happened in Genesis 6, is because if you take that mark, you then are genetically altered, and you become a modern, a modern Nephilim. A mm. modern-day Nephilim, and the judgment is the same. All right. I'm going to take you back to these mounds and the skeletal remains, people uh, that have been almost 10 foot tall, these giant six fingers, six toes. Uh, but you've also found that they, some of them wore copper ornaments. Is that possible? I mean, copper was not being used by Native Americans back then. I don't understand this. Well, and this is this is what makes it very interesting. We also know from archaeological digs uh, done up in Lake Michigan, where, where some of the largest, purest copper in the world is found, we know that tons and tons and tons of this metal was removed from this area. I mean, that's a historic fact. Where did it go? And we also know that Native Americans, for the most part, did not work in copper. And so some of these some of these graves which are exhumed in these mounds, you will see large, um, very large men, very robust men, well over 10 feet tall, and they have copper ornaments, uh, headdresses, necklaces, copper armor, um, and it's amazing. Now, again, you say, well, where's the evidence? And this goes back to our good friends at the Smithsonian who come, take the objects, create them up, and are never seen again. And again, we talked about this earlier, but I believe it's deliberate because... This is a monkey wrench in the whole Darwinian, Beringian, the whole land bridge theory, which man somehow migrated from Asia at the end of the last ice age and crossed over into the Americas. This just completely blows it out of the water. So, so, so it's a total monkey wrench in evolution uh, and Darwinism. Uh, I believe it is. Now, if Darwinism and evolution is disproved, all the work that's been done on these, all the museums, are a total waste. Well, look, they are. And, and, and remember, Darwinism does not embrace the supernatural like, like you and I do. We, we are both frank supernaturalists, and we believe in the supernatural. Um, and, and, and this is the paradigm in which we both work. And, and, and this is the essence of what I'm attempting to prove, that there are supernatural factors or components to all of this. And, and this is what Darwinism refuses to acknowledge on any level, because all of this just evolved. And if we can show that there's a supernatural component to this, outside agencies who are interfacing with the human genome, that's huge. Well, we're out, of, we're out of time right now. Tell me some of your research that you found in uh, Peru. Well, the Peru research said was, was absolutely um, just mind-blowing. And the reason why we went there was we, we knew that we could find uh, evidence of what we believe, of course, are Nephilim skulls, because there are many private museums in Peru, and we uh, zoned in on one of them or zeroed in on one of these, these, these museums. And I'll never forget when we walked in, and there in a display case were over 40 skulls um, just shown, and we were able to open the display case, handle them, photograph them, test them, measure them, everything that you would want to do. Now, just out of curiosity, something that looks so w- out of this world to me, really, is the skulls that have that are elongated. They're not like human skulls. There's a process known as cradle headboarding, 
or cranial deformation. Cranial refers to the skull. Cradle headboarding means that you're taking an infant, like less than one year old, six months old infant. And I've actually seen from I've actually seen one of these um, these devices which were used. To, they would place one in the front of the baby's head and the one in the rear, and they would bind the head. And so as the child grows, it shapes the skull into an elongated, like a cone head type shape. Yeah, it's sort of like the Japanese would would wrap the uh, the feet, uh, and so they'd have real tiny, Jap- some Japanese women would have very tiny feet. Same principle. Okay, go ahead. And, and it's, it's the same idea. They're, they're manipulating bone structure. Now, it, when we were in Peru and we saw these skulls, it became very apparent which ones were cradle headboarded or cranial head deformation deliberately done by human beings to other human beings when they were very, very small. What blew us away, said, were the skulls that we had and we saw at the Paracas Museum. These were conehead shapes or elongated type skulls. Now, a little bit of backstory is needed here, and this is what differentiates these skulls from the normal human skulls. All of us on this planet basically have four plates, okay, four plates which comprise the human skull. They are the frontal plate, the two parietal on the top of the skull, and then the one in the rear called the occipital. Frontal, two parietal, occipital, one in the rear. Many of these skulls, which we saw in Peru, had only one parietal plate. The stitching, or they're called sutures, which hold these plates together, are very evident. You can see them with the naked eye. And on, on all these skulls in Peru, not all the ones, but the ones that we believe are possibly Nephilim skulls, there is only one parietal plate. There should be a suture going down from the top of the, of the frontal plate, right in the front of the skull, and all the way on the top of the head, which goes back to the rear of the skull. That wasn't there. Not even a trace of it. Not even the faintest trace of it. And, and so what is the explanation for that? The explanation is, and that's only, that's only one feature, the, the, the bones underneath the eyes, which are called the zygomatic arch, were, were very pronounced in many of these skulls. The upper jaw, which is known as the maxilla, again, very pronounced. The lower jaw, the mandible, very, very robust. Um, these skulls had many anomalies. The nasal cavity, for instance, was, was a disaster area, according to several medical doctors who looked at these things. On the top of the frontal plate, right in the front, there was sort of like a, a ridge the size of your little finger going all the way around it. And you can't make that from cradle headboarding. You can't manipulate that. And the rear of some of the larger skulls, which we, of course, believe were the male skulls, there was this heart-shaped dome on the back of the at the top back of the skull again with only one parietal plate where there should be two so these skulls were certainly anomalous and this is where the red hair came from one of these skulls with again only had one parietal okay but what does this prove well it proves that there's there's some sort of genetic manipulation going on that's what it proves and because the paracas culture springs into being between 3000 and 3500 years ago it fits the timeline of the diaspora, of the, of the people leaving, or this, these Nephilim tribes leaving the Promised Land in the wake of the, of the, um, the conquest. Okay, but, but how do we not know this is just not part of what evolutionists call the evolutionary cycle, and it's somewhere in between an ape and a man? We had these skulls examined by two medical doctors, 
who told us unequivocally that these are not the skulls of apes or any of the primates, that they are human skulls, but there are genetic differences in them. There are differences in these skulls. We believe that these are not completely human. Now tell me some of the other things you found in Peru. Well, one of the, one of the, um, the places that we, we went to is a place called Huatara, uh, and this is about 7,000 feet above sea level at the foothills of the Andes. And where we went was absolutely in the middle of nowhere, a little small town. And um, in this area, there was a Catholic church that was built over a very old existing structure. And when you're in the church, it's very, very dark, hard to see. But we saw this very um, complex, megalithic stonework, polygonal shapes. Not one stone was, was identical to another. And yet the joinery was so perfect, you, no mortar, mortarless construction, you couldn't put a human hair through it. And when we walked outside the church around uh, to, the, to the rear of the church or the side of the church, it became very evident that there was different builders here, that whatever this thing was, there were trapezoidal shapes, um, the stonework was absolutely mind-boggling, mind-blowing how it was shaped. These stones are, some of them weigh between 4 to 10 to 15 to 20 tons each, and they're placed there in a way that you'd be hard-pressed to do it today. Uh, the stones are polygonal. What I mean by that, many different sided. And those cuts go all the way back six feet in that wall. So if you see angles of one stone, those angles trace that whole stone from beginning to end. They make up that wall. We'd be, you could create it today, Sid, with the tools that we have. But we're talking giant saws to cut these things without any vibration in the saw. And then somehow, you know, it'd be very, very time-consuming. And yet, we see this, these, this structure, thousands of years old, and it begs the question, who made them? And even more mysterious, how did they do that without the tools that we have in the modern age. And as we discussed earlier this week, some of these stones are, 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 are what, 40 tons? Uh, how do they move them? Well, the stones in Waman and Cusco were the largest megalithic stones that we saw. And some of these were as, as large as 120 tons. And remember, Waman is about 12,000 feet above sea level. Uh, this is in Peru. Go ahead. Peru. And the, the quarry is 40 to 60 miles away. And remember, the Inca did not use the wheel. So this begs the question, first of all, how do we quarry these things at, at, at 2,000 feet below the 12,000-foot level, 40 miles away? And how the heck do we get them there? And how do we shape them into these polygonal structures? And when you, you know, the photographs speak louder and, and describe and show a person what we're really looking at. Again, in, in the modern age, you might be able to do this, but it would be so costly. And yet these stones are shaped, they're mortarless, there's no mortar at all. They are thousands of years old. They are very, very ancient. And no one knows where they came from. No one knows the builders. And the building techniques have long ago been lost. Tell me some of the more interesting things you found in the museums in Peru. Well, we, again, there are some museums where the uh, elongated or the conehead-type skull um, is able to be viewed. Um, one in particular museum was the Ica, I-C-A Museum. And this skull that was, that was there, which we have photographs of, uh, was found in the Chongos Necropolis. And Chongos Necropolis is right next door to Paracas, Peru. And the Paracas Museum, you may recall, is where we 
where we were able to handle the skulls. This necropolis is seven miles, uh, goes back into the desert seven miles. It was one of the most bleak places I have ever been. I mean, it's like the Sahara. It's just, it's just desert. And as you're walking through this area, the grave robbers for the last 500 years have been digging in this area. And the place is strewn. It's all, it's all private, private land. It's strewn with mummy wrappings and human remains and, char- and pottery shards as far as the eye can see. It was the most bizarre place I have ever been in my life. And in Machongos, the Chongos skull was in the Ica Museum. It was that of a male, one parietal plate. Remember, that's that plate on the top of the skull, which right. should be intersected with a suture from the frontal to the rear plate. It's not. One parietal plate, and then on top of it, it has this heart-shaped mound, which should not be there. So again, going back to cradle deformation, or, or cradle headboarding, uh, where, where they bind the infant's head at, at a very young age, obviously, with, with material and begin to shape the head. This is not what we're looking at. We believe, I believe, that this is genetic manipulation by an outside source, that outside source being the fallen angels. These are, in my opinion, Nephilim. Uh- why let, now? Let's go back to our institution, the Smithsonian. Uh, why wouldn't the Smithsonian have this front and center? They'd have people coming from all over the world to their museum. Well, I'll tell you something, Sid. It's really interesting. When we went into Lima, and I'll answer your question with this because it ties right into it. I went to Lima first. And the reason why I went to Lima is I wanted to see the golden mummies, which I knew were on display. These are nine-foot mummies, okay, nine-footers. Guess what, Sid? They're no longer there. Why? They've, they've been taken down. Why? I had one thing to it. We went to the National Museum where they, have a, they used to have an entire room of elongated cranial, cranial deformation, what we believe are Nephilim skulls, conehead skulls, a whole room. That section of the museum boarded up, closed down, under renovation, been that way for four to six months. I asked the people, where are the skulls? Oh, we have them. We're going to show them at some point in time. The bottom line is this, the window is closing. And the window is closing because it goes against the Darwinian paradigm. Tell me about the American Stonehenge and, and start out by explaining what Stonehenge is and why this is so amazing. Well, Stonehenge is a place in England um, which has been the sort of mind-boggling or boggling the minds of archaeologists ever since people started looking at it. These stones that comprise Stonehenge were bought from hundreds of miles away. Uh, a henge is a circle, and Stonehenge, of course, is, is a henge made of stone. And what's amazing about Stonehenge is it shows the solstices and the equinox. It's a very complex calendar, and whoever did this did it very deliberately. There's also, there's also um, something which I find interesting about Stonehenge. There's not a glyph or a rune or any type of signature on who did this. Um, I believe it's thousands of years old, um, and I believe this is the technology of the fallen ones. Uh, because the, back then there was no technology on planet Earth like that. Not like this. Not the type of celestial mathematical precision that we see um, used in Stonehenge. Okay, now you say there's something called America Stonehenge. Explain. And what's interesting, this technology is coming from somewhere. There's someone who's very intelligent that is instructing uh, the people who are here on, on how to build this stuff and, and what this stuff means. And also, there, I believe that there's a connection with the Nephilim. Here's why. 
There's a 4,000-year-old structure in New Hampshire. It's called America's Stonehenge. Again, a henge is a circle. This one is a Stonehenge in New Hampshire. And like, this, like the, um, the henge or Stonehenge in England, the one in New Hampshire also has standing stones, which are placed outside the circle, which you can, when you're standing in the center of the circle, you cite the standing stone, let's say for the summer solstice, the longest day of the year, and you will see the, sun, the sunrise come right up over the top of that standing stone. So it's very deliberate, very, very, very deliberate, whoever is doing this. Well, there's a man by the name of Kelsey Stone. He's 22 years old. He's a college student, and his family, the Stones, no pun intended, bought his grandfather actually bought the property, and they are the curators of America's Stonehenge. They own the property. So he's on Google Earth one night, and he's messing around. And he decides, what happens if I take a line from the center of my henge, the America's Stonehenge, and draw it out to the first standing stone of the summer solstice? So he does that, and he continues that line and continues that line and continues it further. And after thousands of miles of, of you know, extending that line, and remember, if you're off a hundredth of a degree, you're going to be who knows where. That line, Sid, wound up intersecting the center trilithon. Those are three rocks. The center trilithon in Stonehenge, England, thousands of miles away. So there, it's, there's an intelligence connected with it, is what you're saying, that is beyond natural science at that time in history. You can't do it. You can't do it in antiquity. The only way you can do it is in the present day with satellites overhead. And it, this is what's still telling about this. Who is the prince of the power of the air? We know it's Satan. The only way you could do this in antiquity, and this site, by the way, is 4,000 years old. That's been radiocarbon dated. 4,000 years old, America Stonehenge, which means whoever's doing this, there's no way you can go across the Atlantic and intersect Stonehenge. It's very deliberate, but it gets even better, Sid. When you extend the line from Stonehenge, the same line now, you wind up in Beirut, Lebanon. And Beirut, Lebanon is a home of the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians are the direct descendants of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were a Nephilim tribe, which Joshua and Caleb sought to destroy in the conquest of, of the Promised Land. And when, when we discovered that, once again, it, it bolsters our theory, bolsters our paradigm, that these ancient megalithic, ancient stone structures that we see were part of some sort of a grid, pre-flood and also post-flood. The fallen one seems to have had some sort of communication grid. These were not temples. And when we see them laid out with this type of mathematical precision, from America Stonehenge to Stonehenge in England to Beirut, which is the home of the Canaanites, descendants of the Nephilim, it seems to me that it's reasonable to say, to state, that there is an outside agency, which, of course, I believe are the fallen ones, Satan and his boys are doing this stuff, to create a grid, a communication grid, as it were, some sort of a grid which perhaps controlled the weather. And we know it will be like the days of Noah, and this is where it gets really mind-boggling to us. I believe, Sid, that the grid is back again. It's different than what it was in antiquity, but it's back. And we know it as the World Wide Web, complete with the hundreds of satellites that orbit the Earth. We are locked into a grid system. Right now it's benevolent, 
But when the Antichrist rears, rears his ugly head, he will use it just like the book of Revelation tells us, with, with you know, great, um, just right, right in front of our faces, that we will, no one will be able to buy, sell, or trade without this mark. And this ties back into the grid. It ties back into the grid. It ties back with the fallen one, Satan, attempting to create man in his own image. And that's what this implant, this mark of the beast, which we talked about earlier, I believe this is what, what it will do. It will turn a human being genetically, because that's what this chip does, alter their DNA so you become a modern-day Nephilim. You know, what's coming to mind is the prophet Daniel says in the last days, knowledge will increase. Well, that's knowledge from the demonic side, but it's also knowledge from the godly side. I mean, without this information, a lot of the Bible, you can't connect. Look, I I agree. I think, again, it goes back to our our interview earlier. When Jesus warns us, it'll be like the days of Noah— I mean, that's, that's the nexus of this whole thing. I mean, that's the center. That's, that's the hub of the wheel right there. Every, all the spokes of prophecy come out from this thing. Unless we understand this cosmic chess match, if you will, between the Most High God and the Fallen One, and what's really going on here, this seed war, as some people call it, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the Messiah. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. L.A., we were talking earlier this week that this is sort of like, Jesus said it'd be like the days of Noah before he returns. Uh, tie everything you've been speaking about together as to why it's like the days of Noah. I, I thank you, sir, for the opportunity to do that. Um, I believe that Jesus is, is showing us very succinctly what it's going to be like in the days right before his return. And unless he comes back, he warns us no flesh would survive. And I think that's the most chilling, sobering statement in all the Bible. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. And those days are going to be very similar to the days of Noah. What differentiates the days of Noah is the presence of the fallen angels. The Hebrew word for that, b'nei ha-elohim. The fallen angels cohabiting, having sex, sexual relations with the women of earth, and creating this ungodly offspring known as the Nephilim. And now we see, and we've talked about this with what I believe the alien abduction phenomenon. There's a tie-in here. Satan is back to his tricks. He's def- def- definitely trying to manipulate the human genome via what I believe is the mark of the beast. This chip that we have seen, I've handled it, I've seen it under a scanning electron microscope. I think it's, it's changing the human DNA. That's what it will do. It will be couched as an upgrade. Remember, millions of people worldwide will take this mark and receive it. And this ties back into Darwinism, which we've talked about. If there is no God and we were created by extraterrestrials, now they're back at this critical juncture in human history, perhaps after a cataclysmic war in the Middle East, to usher us into a time of peace, prosperity, and knowledge. They'll come with two things, free energy, but the other thing is is a DNA upgrade, because they were our creators. If we believe in the evolutionary paradigm, it, it, it all fits. They come back, here's the implant, you'll... You'll live disease-free between five and 900 years. And again, this ties back into the days of Noah because we know the lifespan of the days of Noah is between five and 900 years. So I think this is what I call, I've, I've coined the coming great deception. I think it's here. I think this is, this is proof of what is happening. It's his endgame. It's the Luciferian endgame, the coming great deception. 
And I think we're right on the verge of it. I think we're already seeing some of it. I'm wondering if this chip is going to be sold on that it'll cause us to live longer and be healthier. Exactly. So if one mile wide UFOs appear and the occupants tell us that they were our progenitors, they created us here, they genetically manipulated us here, started the world's earliest civilizations, and now at this critical juncture in human history, they're to give us a DNA upgrade. Wow. The line will form around the block. Well, and your sanctified speculation, how far off is this? I think we're close. Um, Last week, uh, there was a meeting in Washington Press Corps of former congressmen, astronauts, uh, people with very high military conference uh, clearances, all telling that the UFO phenomena is real, that it's time to end the truth embargo. The American people know, need to know what is going on in the skies. And this is what I try to warn the church about. This is not E.T. These are fallen angels masquerading as such to cause the great deception. Well, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of the blanks and missing information about end times can be gleaned from your research. And that's why I'm so excited to release. We're really the first to release this because it's literally just off the press on the trail of the Nephilim. And the two DVDs available for a gift of $50. This is the Shabbat broadcast. Let me pray over you. The Lord is blessing you right now. The Lord is smiling upon you right now. The Lord is surrounding you with his favor right now. The Lord, he's gifting you. Just hold your hands out and receive. He's gifting you right now. The Lord is giving you his shalom, his peace, in the name of the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, Yeshua HaMashiach Sikinu, Jesus the Messiah, our righteousness. Your To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming Mishpucha or Chalitzim, write to me, Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 704-943-6500. That's 704-943-6500. For a CD of this week's broadcast, send a donation to Sid Roth. That's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 
28278.